This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud, and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA Golf, Cricket, Esports, and of course, NFL Football. Every week during the 2021 NFL season, Thrive Fantasy has pool play contests and heads-up matches with prizes of all sizes, and even free play contests for real money. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code S-H-N when depositing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. Hey, and welcome to the 55-yard line with Scott and Greg today. And we are finally back after about a month off here to, uh, we are going to be sitting down with Michael McCambridge, who everybody, at least I would hope everybody knows, is probably the, uh, you know, in terms of football historians and football authors, next to our friend Chris Willis, uh, it's Michael McCambridge. So we're going to be sitting down with him here in just a few to uh, talk about his current work, his past works, and also, uh, you know, what he's got coming up. And I guarantee you what he's got coming up um, is going to be, I think is going to be awesome in terms of his future book coming out in a few years. And once Scott finishes up his current book, I'll be reading that and digging in. It's a book. Um, it's different. It's on uh, English English football, not American football. But we sit down with Mike. I'm sorry. We sit down with Michael and um, talk about, you know, it's a nice segue. Talking about English soccer is a nice segue into talking about American football. Would you agree, well, Scott? Football. I would agree. I mean, it's football. Yeah. It's association football. And we normally talk about tackle football. So, it's- yeah. There's a relationship between the two. Yeah, and I know Scott. Which uh, which uh, which team are you? Are you what are you? Which team are you a big football supporter of across the pond? Okay, yeah. This, if this you got to pick a while. one. Yeah, well, primarily Celtic FC, which unfortunately yeah. last couple of years isn't you know it's fish in the barrel in the Scottish Premier League. Um, Manchester United. I own one share of Sot Stock. Really? Although, yeah, I, I just did that on a goof. And I've, I've sort of your almost, wife didn't know about that, did it? Well, I mean, no. Well, now she does. Well, now she does. Yeah. Well, no, she she doesn't pod. <laughs> she doesn't pod. She doesn't care. But yeah, I mean, I, I, the main reason I followed them is because when 
a lot of my sports history knowledge came from my school library and there were books on Manchester United. Oh, so they okay. just, they just kind of became my team, you know, okay. but then my Scottish heritage led me more to Celtic FC. And then got I've really it. gotten into the Bundesliga and I like that. Dortmund, so. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, on Amazon prime and off the top of my head, I, I don't re- recall the name of the documentary, but there's a good documentary on prime about Celtic FC. Or so, oh, um, wow, okay. Yeah. I need to, and you say it's Amazon Prime? Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. And I'll be honest with you, if I got to sit here as we're recording, I'm going to be wasting a lot of people's time to, to, to try to figure. But no, if, we, you type in, if you type in Celtic, you know, you know, foot, you know, football, you'll be able to find it on Prime. And for me, I got kind of two teams. One is Leeds United, which, you know, I know you've seen the movie, but the damn United. Yeah. That's where, great, and also too on movie, yeah, and Prime they they're currently covering the team uh, from the 2019 season through the 2020 season um, through the pandemic, and that's a fascinating, you know, Prime does these football does these sports shows so well that um, I got a feeling, man, NFL Films is in in for a run for their money. With the way to, Prime is doing, yeah, and I, need, I need to cancel. I need to cancel one of my seventy-three streaming services, and, and I guess get Prime. So I just oh yeah, see the the Celtic thing. Yeah, if you if but. yeah, it's for sports actually, and also you know the NFL. I'm guessing the NFL is going to have the Sunday ticket on Prime. So I'm thinking we're all going to be, you know, having Prime, having to have Prime as sports fans here, relatively soon. And the other team for me is um, Peterborough United. So oh, nice. And yeah. I should you know because. Because I live in Birmingham, Birmingham FC, you know, is another team that I try to keep up with just because of the, the name, you know. And, and oh, and, yeah. You know, I'm kind of weird because I like international soccer and then I like grassroots soccer, like, right. you know, the, the lower division teams in the U.S. I'm kind of, yeah. you know, as far as MLS and, and USL, I'm kind of, yeah. Really well, I know during our month off, you've been kind of soccer focused, so. Which... Yeah, mostly, you know, just my alma mater, UAB, you know, watching them play and then uh, also – uh, FC Birmingham, which is a pioneer league yeah. team, which a friend of mine, Preston Gilfarb, is the is the gaffer there. So it's been fun oh, watching okay. them. Yeah, no, in the month off. Well, obviously, you know, we've had CFL football, which I've been watching every weekend. But it's really weird, just for whatever reason, this this year, and I've, it's been a challenging month for me, just in terms of work, school, football, had other things going on, Dustin family, just, you know, you know how it goes. For whatever reason, this September, this autumn just turned out to be just there was a crush of stuff. But with that said, at least you know I've been keeping an eye on this, on CFL football. The games, though, I'll be honest with you, haven't been as great as what we kind of hoped that they would be. Yeah, you know, I really and, and it was probably expecting too much. You know, you don't have any preseason and, and that sort of thing, and you basically had teams that were off for a year. But yeah, I was really hoping, especially as far as a chamber of commerce kind of thing, that the CFL would come out and you'd be having a lot of 42 to 33 kind of games. Right. And, right. And that I mean, there I mean, there have been a couple of decent games. But, yeah. And especially me being a Hamilton fan, there have been quite a few duds. So, yeah, if you're watching if, if your only point of reference so far this year is the NFL and the CFL. You're going to go with the NFL because the NFL's had a whole lot more. Interesting oh, yeah. games, you know, especially yeah. with the Jets finally winning. That was great. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, the Cardinals are awesome this year. They really are. They put a they, nice I, beat you down know, on the Rams. I, I knew when the Cardinals, you know, I, when we were doing the fantasy football stuff, I'm like, I'm going to grab the Cardinals defense. Why? I go, trust me. And they have not disappointed. And, uh, but yeah, they're sitting, what, 4 0 now? I think we're one of the few undefeated teams. So we'll see. I mean, but they are the Cardinals, and I'm not going to – you know, I'm not about ready to crown them champions yet, but at the rate they're going, I mean, they built – I knew they were building a decent squad, and pretty much because they had to, because if not, the coach is going to lose his job this year. Well, my thing being a Jets fan, if they can somehow finish eight and nine, I will consider that a successful season. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought maybe they were going to be the first team to go 0-17 oh and, oh and until – this last Sunday, Wilson looked like a pretty good quarterback. So, I'm, you know, they yeah. could possibly beat the Falcons this weekend. So I'm Well, you know, and it's sad to say, and I, I hate saying this because I know our, our friends, our good friends, the Snows over at the World of Football and uh, and Arnie over over at the Football History Dude podcast, they're both Lions, they're all Lions fans. And 
my heart breaks for him. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you know, the thing is, like me, when you follow a team, yeah, that traditionally sucks, you just sort of you embrace the suck them. I mean, you don't, well, you don't necessarily it, want yeah. to, but you well, don't have a choice because you know what's going to happen. Right. So. It's, you know, being a being a football Cardinal fan and being a Cub fan. Yeah. No, I understand. That's you know, during this month off, uh, my wife and I spent uh, got to go to Wrigley. You know, we were sitting in the bleachers, and uh, it was that was that was that was a fun time. Oh, and what happened was prior to that, our, our dog had passed away, so we were not able to take really get out of the house much with an elderly dog. So since the dog is our dog has passed, and he was eighteen, so it it, it wasn't as you know people are like oh it's sorry, but he was eighteen. We were just happy. So now we've been traveling a lot, and uh, even the other day we were up in uh, Oshkosh, and uh, my wife's looking around. We're traveling traveling back on Sunday. Is there a football game going on? I go, yeah, the Packers play the Steelers, and it was, uh, you know, Wisconsin turns all green on uh, football Sunday, so it was kind of fun for her to experience. I knew that, but um, you know, it was uh, it was kind of just a, one of those things sitting in the culverts, going, yeah, this is what makes this what is what makes sports great is the fandom, and even though for me they were all wearing the wrong jersey, you know, being a Bears fan. Yeah, it, w- it was kind of cool. And speaking of the Bears, we all know that they're looking at moving to Arlington Heights. You and I have not had a chance to talk about this at all. And uh, what are your thoughts about the, the Bears moving? You know, I mean, this, I, I guess something like this is inevitable. I mean, you know, you and I, we tend to look at things through grainy black and white, you know, when we oh yeah, when we think about history. And it's just, you know, you always think of the Bears and Soldier Field and, oh, you can never leave. But, you know, I mean... And you know it's, what? It's going to happen. And the thing is, I'm one of those guys, you know, I obviously I love my football history and, you know, would give anything for us to still watch these teams play in, you know, old baseball parks and everybody wearing a single bar. But when it comes to this, I'm like, move to Arlington Heights. And we drove by Arlington Heights two weeks ago. So I'm driving by, looked over there, saw the racetrack off the highway. And I told my wife, I go, that's uh, where the Bears are going to play. And she was asking me, again, she's Japanese, so there are a lot of questions involved. And why would they move there? And I go, well, it's it boils down to money. And if the Bears can build a palace out there, hopefully build this dome stadium too or retractable, that would be perfect because I think we're, we're, in, you know, we're in the 21st century now. And you know, as we're, you know, we're going to be talking about with, with, with Michael here shortly, Football is a business. So, yeah, I think uh, it's long past time for the Bears to uh, leave Soldier Field. Soldier Field's still going to be there. It's a great place for a college game as, you know, you had the Wisconsin, you had a Wisconsin and Notre Dame playing not too long ago. So it's a great, it's a great stadium for college football. But, um, you know, yeah, it's time for the Bears to back up. And, and Well, you know, up. I mean, as far as stadiums, obviously I live in a city – that doesn't have an NFL team, but you know, Legion field. I mean, our, our, the book I wrote it, Legion field is, is a star in every single, you know, protein yeah. that Birmingham had. And I love Legion field, the history and everything, but it's a very old stadium. It, it's in disrepair. And in certain ways, they even had to remove the upper deck several years ago because of safety issues. Right. And now in Birmingham protective stadium open on, you know, in sort of the uptown district and where UAB plays their home games. Went there at its grand opening last Saturday. You know, Legion Field, yeah, seats 70,000. Protective seats, 47,000. It is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, even though UAB lost the, the football game, it's Liberty, which was disappointing. Being in that stadium and just seeing it as part of like a Birmingham renaissance for, for a mm-hmm. guy who just moved back, yeah, that was glorious. So, yeah, I mean, I'll always appreciate Legion Field for what it was, what it meant, its place in history. But this is the place I want to go watch football at now, you know, and, and yeah. it just gets back to what you're saying. I mean, if they build that in, in Chicago, right. that's how fans are going to feel, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we'll just kind of compare. It's not even comparing apples to oranges. We're talking about the stadium experience. So in the last month, um, got to go see both the Cubs and the Sox play. And, you know, for, for the Cubs, we sat on the bleachers and the bleachers were a blast. It was awesome. Everything that I had heard about, after 50 years of being a Cubs fan, I finally got to experience out there and where we sat. I mean, we were literally hanging over the field. 
you know, you know that where you know the baskets are. So I mean that was just oh, amazing, man. and it was. But Wrigley, you know, and tomorrow, hey, I, we're headed to we're headed to Boston. So I don't know if I'll get. Hopefully, I'm gonna at least get over by Fenway. I don't know if I could be able to get a tour of the ballpark, but nostalgia only sells so much. So going to down to the south side, seeing a game at at at, at Sox Park is a much better experience than it was at Wrigley. Wrigley is still, I mean, so nostalgia, I guess what I'm saying is history. I mean, we love history. History is great, but I think we live in a day and age now that um, unless it's either at Fenway Park at Wrigley Field, what matters is comfort and convenience. And, you know, most importantly, too, just kind of even thinking about it, when you're a parent, and I'm not a parent, and I know you're not a parent, but just think if we had kids, you know, it would be so much easier to take a kid to say see a Sox game than it would be to Wrigley and taking them to Wrigley would be great. But, you know, there's also that comfort level and convenience for the parents. So, um, so I think the new stadiums are more conducive to obviously attracting the, the, the younger fans that we need for all of our favorite sports to, uh, to survive. No, I I agree. And and to your point, I mean, yeah, if you're a historian, you need to, go to Wrigley Field or you need to go to Soldier Field, but you need to go for that one-off experience. If you're looking at buying season tickets, you probably want to be at a place, as you mentioned, that's more comfortable, that's more family-friendly, right? whatever. That's like this new stadium in Birmingham. It's really designed for socialization with these huge concourses. Right. Uh, and it's just really, you know, to me, it's sort of a character in and of itself. I mean, you know, yeah, I want to go see UAB play football but after last week I just want to go back to the stadium so when yeah. they have events in the future whether it's soccer whether right. they bring in you know premier lacrosse league you know whatever I want to be there I mean it's just right. a cool place to be well and you know going back and we'll take that we'll take this discussion over to the CFL which to me you know the CFL is doing their stadiums right because everybody who I've talked to have never I've never heard anybody say anything bad about any of the nine stadiums that any of the teams play in now mind you hey quite a few we've, what how many stadiums have been built in the last 10 years you know up in regina you've got the new stadium in winnipeg toronto the rebuilt one over in hamilton and you know i mean all these stadiums are you know are, unless i'm missing something or i'm 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 misinformed but are very fan very fan friendly. So, um, though with that said, I I think the CFL has done it right by you know not building these eighty thousand seat stadiums and you know keeping the state you know keeping you know twenty five thousand thirty thousand because I think that's where we're going eventually with the way ticket prices are, as you know like we're going to be talking about with with Michael here in terms of just the cost of games themselves. So, yeah, just my thoughts. Yeah, and I think you and I were probably talking offline about, about this a while back, but for me, just based on these ticket prices, I'll probably never go to a quote-unquote major league event again in terms of football. Right. You know, I mean, it's just – and for as far as the fan experience, I prefer minor league baseball to major league baseball. Oh, maybe yeah. it's just because you just feel the – you know, maybe it's because you want to be more social. You know, you're there with your friends, and it's not the end of the world world you know if the team you're cheering for loses it's, it's more of an event right I just, more, I just really enjoy minor league uh sports yeah know? well i mean you know with that said i mean you know i've got that other podcast talking about um football in japan and over there it is very much a minor i'll use it it's a minor minor league sport and uh there's something to be said about the smaller crowds the more intimate setting and um you know going you know i had for as much as I'd love to go to a Bears game, you know, especially this time of year when the weather's just right, you know, the the bear it's it's not an intimate experience seeing a pro football game. Well, and I'm kind of I've reached the point where I'm kind of like the old guy on the Geico commercials where I don't want to mess with the traffic, you know. And I'm already thinking, right. well, if I park here and leave in the third court, you know, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I like the I like the more intimate experience as well. Yeah. And Wrigley Field, with that said, Wrigley Field's a very intimate setting. But, you know, that was built over 100 years ago. And it was basically a minor league ballpark built back then. So, so, 
Well, with that said, let us, you guys have heard us, uh, you know, John here a bit. So without further ado, we will uh, let you uh, let you guys listen to our interview today with Michael McCambridge. And we're hope to hear, hope to be putting out another podcast pretty soon. It's been a busy month for both Scott and I, and it's going to be, you know, October just seems to kind of be picking up speed. So hopefully you will be hearing from us in the very new future with a new show with a guest. I, we couldn't even tell you who it's going to be because at this point we do not, <laughs> we don't have anybody lined up for the next show, but stay tuned. Uh, stay tuned. We're, uh, uh, we've got a few leads on, on, on some, uh, some big names, but, um, but yeah, you're definitely going to be hearing from us uh, sooner rather than later. So without further ado, here is our interview with Michael McCambridge. Michael, thanks for joining us here. And uh, Scott and I, uh, we are uh, looking forward just uh, having a quick chat with you and talking about your latest book and also your thoughts on American football as it relates to kind of the business, kind of the past and future. So uh, good to be with you guys. I'm really to to read the book. I mean, I'm one of those guys, obviously, like you, who I like association football as well as tackle football. So uh, just the, the whole concept of this is, is really interesting. I was wondering how it all kind of came about to put it in book form. Um, it, was, it was serendipitous. I spent some time in Liverpool in 2018 because I had in my mind this big book I wanted to write about sort of the tension between this like relentlessly local club and the loyalty it had built because of that local scene. And then the reality that in the 21st century in sports, it had this global presence and people 5,000 miles away would assemble to watch the games and how that tension played itself out with, with the players, the coaches, the fans. Um, and so I did some research for for that book and it was um it was gonna be a big book and it was gonna be very expensive to write and it didn't it didn't come together but then um like a year later i got this i got this call from one of the writers i'd met in liverpool neil atkinson who hosts the excellent podcast the anfield rap and the liverpool echo the daily newspaper there had idea of a correspondence between a fan right in the center of things and a fan in some far-flung locale and Austin, Texas at nearly 5,000 miles away qualified as a far-flung locale. <laughs> so Neil and I started exchanging letters every week at the beginning of the, um, the beginning of the 2019, 2020 season. And we, we weren't just corresponding about Liverpool. We were also writing about the nature of obsession, the sort of, um, can you still take a person seriously who builds their lives around football games? The answer being, I hope so. Um, and, and, and sort of how American sports fans related to their clubs differently than English sports fans, the nature of, I mean, you know, you think about the premier league, most popular league in the world, but then you think about the geography of great Britain and imagine, you know, 20 NFL teams in a landmass the size of Alabama and what that. And so, you know, we were we were sort of on these parallel tracks writing about Liverpool season. I was also writing about the Chiefs season because Liverpool had gone 30 years without a title. The Chiefs had gone 50 years without a Super Bowl. And then in in March, obviously, this dream season um, comes to a stop and nobody knows what's going to happen next. And suddenly there's a global pandemic. And I remember one letter that I wrote to Neil in April where I had just realized that we were about to experience the first gameless month of our lives, that nobody our age had ever experienced what we were about to experience. No football, no basketball, no baseball, no soccer, no hockey, nothing, full stop. And that in the past through wars and recessions and all sorts of things going on and, and terrorist attacks, the games had gone on. And then we're sitting there in, in the spring of 2020 and we don't know when or if the games are going to resume. It was, uh, it made for an interesting correspondence. 
Sorry, ask a question, you get a plot. Didn't mean oh, that. that's, that's <laughs> great. That's great. And <laughs> with Liverpool, um, you know, I'm a, I'll, I'll let's straight up, I'm a Peterborough United fan because I've spent a lot of time over by Peterborough and also a Leeds United fan because of the, the movie, The Damn United. Uh-huh. What similarities did you find with football in, in England versus say football fans here? Were there, I know there, I know there are differences and I know there are similarities. What was most striking to you? Um, I, I think there's a couple things. I think anybody who grows up on American sports and start and starts watching soccer as it's played in England about a year or two in, you have this, this sort of ugly American tendency to say, okay, your game is good, but there are 10 things that you need to learn from American sports that would, that would make it so much better. And then a few more years after that, suddenly you're like, okay, well, maybe there's 10 things we could learn from English <laughs> sports and, you know, and you understand the cultural exchange. And finally you, you come to accept it. I don't even notice anymore that um, in England, they count up in terms of time. Whereas in the States, we count down. Um, those things, they're just both, both sports are so inextricably linked in my DNA now that I, that I don't even, I don't even notice the differences. I just went in Rome. I, I, I do as the Romans. Um, I think the thing that is common across all sports and all land masses is if you are a Leeds United fan and you are watching a Leeds United um, Brighton game, you are more likely than not to be sure that Mike Dean has some lifelong grudge against Leeds United and he is trying to bury your team and that whoever the announcers are must have some secret hatred for Leeds United <laughs> and are refusing to give the club the respect it deserves. Just as I can't tell you the number of announcers I've talked to who say, you know, if I get the same amount of hate mail from Jets fans as I get from Browns fans, then I'm doing my job. So that that kind of sympathetic myopia, I think, is true across across all land masses. I think the biggest difference is that English fans, especially English soccer fans, are more organized, more vocal, more principled, and they will step up and take a stand much more quickly than American football fans. Uh, the, the obvious example is that the European Super League that, that launched and, and went face down into a empty pool um, several months ago. And it was just a terrible idea. And it was literally fans outrage that stopped it in its track. It was a bad idea and the fans prevented it from happening. In American football, I have yet to meet a single fan who wanted there to be a 17-game regular season in the NFL. I don't know anyone who's for it. Every coach I've to is like, it's not a good idea. I don't know any players who are for it. There are players who voted for it because of the deal that was offered, but it's not going to make the game better. It's not going to make the season more interesting. But as American fans, we're just like, oh, yeah, guess they're going to add a 17th game. So I think that's one big difference. And it seems to me, it. and it seems to me during my time there when I would watch football on TV, talk to people, uh, talk to the locals, the fans, as compared to here with the NFL, and I think we all can agree here that oftentimes the NFL doesn't care what the fans want or think. Whereas over in England, it, to me, it appears the fans have the power in many ways. Yep. Yeah, I think there is there is more, you know, I don't think the fans in England feel like the clubs particularly care about them, but I, I think there's a measure of respect. There's a measure of um, the fans are more likely to have a spot at the table. Whereas in America, we... Um, 
to use a phrase I remember Spike Lee once used. In America, the clubs give us the okie doke, you know, and they, they tell us they care. But, um, you know, what does a pizza cost at Jerry World? I think it's like $90 for a pizza at, at, at the Cowboy Stadium. <laughs> so now, uh, you know, I know there's some exceptions to that. I know the Falcons have had some success with um, reducing their concession prices. But, um, you know, when you go to an American football stadium, I think about this a lot. When you go to American football stadium in the NFL, the first sort of interaction between the fan and the club is often, uh, that'll be $50 for parking. Right. I mean, you know, you think about, and so it's, uh, it's a different, and obviously geography matters here. Um, a lot of, a lot of English soccer clubs are playing in, they're in neighborhoods and people walk or they take public transportation. So it's a, it, it's a different um, environment entirely. Yeah. Which is reminiscent being in Chicago, um, going to Wrigley right. Field. So it's, sure. uh, yeah, it's, it's a neighborhood ballpark and you know, those stadiums over there too, which I love the fact that a lot of those stadiums are really old and yeah. they, you know, some have moved, some have built new ones, but there's, I mean, they, they still, they, they don't build, they don't tear down stadiums and build them up like we do here, which well, I found they do refreshing. in some cases. True. Um, if you talk True. to, if you talk to some Arsenal fans, they're still, uh, they're still upset about Highbury being gone for, um, there's a great John Wesley Harding song that references that called, um, there's a Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be. And <laughs> And he mentions he mentions the <laughs> Arsenal rebuilding their stadium for a, for a new thing. Um, as a Liverpool fan, I loved what they've done with Anfield. It's the same thing that the Packers did with Lambeau, right? That the Red Sox did with Fenway, which is the interior is the same, and they refurbish and build out. Yeah, concourses are wider. That's great. Yeah, well, that's so, where that's where I was going with that. With yeah. um, you know, they they a lot of the older stadiums you, you wouldn't recognize them from the old photos. But they're still in the same plot of land. They there's yep. still a tradition about them. Um, but I have been by that Arsenal Stadium uh, when I used to mm -hmm. go back and forth between London and Cambridge back when I was in the military. Yeah, that was that's a nice stadium, and I've got a good uh, a couple of good friends of mine that have gone there. They're like, oh yeah, this is nice. This compared to the old stadium, but you know, it's 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 it you know, um, but so with American football here. What lessons can, with American and let's use Canadian football too, what lessons do you think we can learn from the British in building, in, not only building the sport, but keeping the young people in? Well, I think that starts ticket pricing, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you look at, yeah. um, you look at, I'm going, uh, I'm going back to Kansas City this weekend for, um, the deplorable occasion of my 40 year high school reunion. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick around for night and I'm going to see the chiefs play Buffalo on Sunday night football. And I was, I was fortunate enough to be able to buy a couple tickets for the game, but regular season tickets, lower level on the sidelines, you know, uh, are like $600 now. And, I love football, love the Kansas City Chiefs, but I'll be sitting in the upper deck in the corner <laughs> because, because those tickets are only $135. And I think that um, I understand why the prices are where they are, but I, I, I do think one of the things American football teams and Canadian football teams can learn is there needs to be some sort of discount pricing for younger kids when i was growing up in kansas city they had something called the huddle club and i think you could get into games for a dollar you know and and um there, there needs to be something like that because one of the things that living here in austin i've been in austin back in austin for six years now and i have some neighbors and i see some neighbors playing football catch out out in, in their yard 
but in six years, those are the only people I've seen playing football in the yard because kids just don't play football out in out in the street anymore the way the way they do. And this is in Texas, which is a football loving state. And I think you've you've got to find a way to get um, the next generation hooked into the actual games, not just the jerseys, not just the fantasy, not just the Madden, but the actual game of, of football. That's one of the things I, I think should be a priority. Yeah, that's a good point. I live in a neighborhood, and I'll be honest with you, I think I've seen maybe five kids in 20 years out playing catch. Yep. I remember growing up, and I'm, I'm 60, so I'm, I think, Michael, you and I are close to the same age. But, I mean, that was the thing. That's what you did, whether, you know, winter, spring, summer, and fall, you were out playing some sport. And that, yep. you know, that led me into it. I mean, you know, you pretended you were Don Maynard. You you were Jim Brown or whatever. And that was, that was part of it. That was our version of fantasy football when I was right. a kid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, every one of us wanted to be either Roger Staubach or Terry Bradshaw or, uh, you know, God, well, I mean, uh, who else? Well, I wanted to be Bob Greasy, but that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother story. <laughs> so um, with that said, Let's talk about go back back in time America's game, which is the definitive, you know, for anybody who doesn't know anything about American football, I always, and especially, you know, talking about American football over in England, I would always reference your book. And since then you've, you, you are a prolific author and written quite a bit. And I'm, and I told you offline, I'm still in the middle of your Chuck Noll book. What, um, as, as an author moving, looking at the sport, what has changed since you first wrote America's game to now? Have you seen just in a nutshell, what kind of changes have you seen take place both good and bad? Um, I think a couple things have changed. All of the, all of the forces that I talked about in 2004, uh, this tension between, football the game and football the business that tension has been exacerbated and has been strengthened and when i talk to people in football i mean this is why we've got a 17th game right right because there's there's more money in it it's not because it um makes the game more competitive it's not certainly not because it makes the game safer it's not because there was a widespread public clamor among fans going, boy, the 16 just isn't enough. I wish there was a 17th regular season game. It's none of that. It's just because another week of inventory, even if it's inventory in which um, Lamar Jackson can't go because he's injured and Kirk Cousins can't start because he's got COVID or whatever, there's going to be another week of inventory. And so I think those tensions that I identified at the end of America's games um, have increased. Um, so I think that's, that is an issue. Um, one of the other things that's changed and I think has changed for the better is there continues to be this expansion of the football audience. And there are more people of color in the football of audience there's more women in the football audience than there was even a generation ago. And I think if the NFL is going to continue to be number one, it needs to find a way to continue to broaden its base. And we see that in a number of ways. We see that in, um, in sort of ways that the NFL is reaching out to the Latino community in the past several months. Um, the NFL has, has an organization um, that is very inclusive about and lesbians being not just following football, but playing football. Certainly Carl Nassib coming out um, over the off season has been, um, there, there's been a lot of positive reporting around it, but there's also been no controversy. None of the things that people said might happen if, if a gay player ever came out of the NFL. Um, Carl Nassib is the first active player to come out of the NFL. I don't think anybody thinks Carl Nassib is the first gay player to play in the NFL. Right. Um, so those things are good. I, I, 
I read somewhere that I think 40% of the NFL audience, TV audience on any Sunday is now female. And that, that speaks to that expansion because, you know, when I started watching, I think when you guys started watching, the NFL audience, if you go to sports bars, if you go to games, what was it? It was mostly white guys, you know, right. mostly middle-aged white guys. Yep. And the, the way demographics are, um, you're not going to be able to be the number one sport in the land if you've just got middle-aged white guys going forward. You need to broaden that base. You need to broaden your audience. And I think the NFL is, has made some gains there, which it, yeah. which it needs to continue doing. Yeah, just uh, female coaches, female officials. I mean, that was just mm-hmm. a, a huge leap forward, you know, right. for the league. Uh, what I think what I – well, worry is probably a wrong word, but I just wonder, you know, we talk about young people being interested in sports. I mean, I wonder if they're just shifting away. There's so many different things you can do now besides sports. And you just – I'm trying to look 25, 30 years down the road. I mean, the NFL is the 600-pound gorilla, but – you know, will it will you know will it still be that in a in a couple of decades? You just you know, I wonder. I have thought um, for a long time that there was a sea change coming, and I can remember I hosted uh, in 2014. I hosted a panel discussion in St. Louis at Washington University in St. Louis, and the the topic was: Is the United States becoming a soccer country? And one of the people on the panel was Clark Hunt, the, uh, the owner of the Chiefs, who's also his family has also obviously been involved in soccer. And Clark Hunt said something that I thought was was really brave to say, especially in a baseball town like St. Louis, which was he said he thought in 25 years, the three biggest sports in America would be football, basketball and soccer. And I think the the latest demographic studies would would bear that out um i think in the 18 to 34 group soccer is either even with or ahead of baseball the average um the average age of the world series viewer last year was like 58 years old um so i think there is there is a change afoot and you know you you talked about you talked scott about the the ways that people access things and the way they experience things. My kids grew up mostly in St. Louis, first 15 years of their lives in St. Louis, which is a great baseball town. They have no use for baseball. Baseball to them is just, it's just waiting. It's just nothing happens, but they'll sit down and watch 45 minutes of continuous action and a half of soccer cup or euros or something like that. And they also, you know, they both are, are familiar with my daughter's in a fantasy football league, but it's, there is something to the pace of play. And I, I think that um, the NFL going more, no huddle, more, more plays, more pace. That's probably a, a good thing for, for getting the younger generation. Yeah. I know we, we always, you know, the talk is the NFL has become more CFL in the sense of your passing, your, your offensive output. Certainly. Yeah. And uh, now if they would just knock down that play clock to 20 seconds, probably be even more an exciting. Of course you would gas most uh, quite a, quite a few of the uh, heavier players on the line, <laughs> but yeah, in terms of just kind of moving forward, do you see the NFL? Well, the big talk is this weekend, you know, you've got the international game going. Do you foresee mm-hmm. just putting on, I guess, your futurist hat, do you see the NFL branching out, you know, obviously putting a team in London, but actually creating a separate league or even division with in, in, in international markets, not so much in the immediate future, but as they move, as they look for new sources of revenue. It's hard for me to see how, how logistically you can have a team in Tokyo or, or someplace in Asia you could just about do it in London. If you had the, say the Jacksonville Jaguars became the London Jaguars. You could move the Miami Dolphins to the AFC South, put the Jaguars in the AFC East. And so they've got eight or nine road games 
you'd have them take four trips to the States and they'd have two week trips and they'd, they'd stay for, you could just about find a way to do that. Um, but I think beyond that, and until we get quantum air travel or something like right. that, it becomes really hard. And it's also, you know, the, the advantage of, of England is they at least speak the same language. So a group of 53 men who played football in college in the South or the West could conceivably be okay with going and living in London for a few years. But I think expecting those same people culturally to go live in Japan or Germany where, where the language is completely different would be a harder sell. Right. And I think the players association would have an issue. The market, the market of London versus the market of, say, Jacksonville. I don't know much about business, but I, I do think there's <laughs> probably more luxury box opportunities in London, I'm guessing, than Jacksonville, Florida. True. Yeah, you mentioned that, and I remember when there was first talk that there would be a, a you know franchise in London. And I remember in the World Football League in 1974, they had uh, a team in Honolulu. And I the think Hawaiians. When, Right. And I think what they did is they would play like three home games, three road games. And right. when they were, quote unquote, on the road, you know, in the continental United States, they were based, I believe, in Riverside, California or something mm -hmm. like that. So, yeah, I'd wondered if maybe London would do something similar where they're yeah. based in a certain city in the United States while they're on their U.S. tour. Right. But, yeah, well, I could see that. And it's not like the NFL does not have the money to make sure that these guys stay at the best places with the best amenities to help with, you know, for anybody who's traveled overseas, you know, that jet lag it, for that first few days is a, is a, is a killer. So, I mean, and yet I it's still, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. And yet it's still a competitive disadvantage because right. one of the things that, that football has over the other sports is the work week is approximately the same. Um, yeah. You know, you're very much a routine. You have you have eight or nine business trips a year that you go on, but you leave on Saturday morning, you're back on Sunday night, and then the, the routine continues. Right. So even if you had lux accommodations in the States, you're still looking at, rather than return home after a road game on Sunday night, you're staying in, you know, wherever you're staying, whether right. it's Jacksonville or or. Carolina or something like that, you're spending weeks at a time, essentially away from home. Right. Um, so it, it would be, I would rather not play on that team. I'd rather play on another team in that same division and, and have a more normal schedule. But I do think it's plausible that, that there could be a London team in the next 10, 15 years. Okay. Okay. Well, and, and finally, let's, to wrap things up um, in terms of your future projects, what do you got? on the, on your plate next? Um, I am presently working. I'm about a hundred interviews in with um, at least another hundred to go on a book that's going to be out in 2023. It's called the big time, how the decade of the 1970s transformed sports in America. And the thesis of the book is that the seventies was the pivotal decade in the history of American sports. Um, because so many things we take for granted today, um, sports going into primetime television, athletes beginning to get a sense of autonomy through free agency, integration becoming more the rule than exception, at least within sports, women becoming involved in unprecedented numbers as both athletes and fans. All those things either started or reached critical mass during the 70s. Right. And that was the decade that put American sports on the trajectory to where it is now, which is one of the very last big tents in American popular culture. So it's a broad social history and that's what I'm going to be working on for the next year and a half. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. And as soon as that Absolutely. comes out for pre-order, I'm all over it. Um, I'm, and I, I'm looking forward to surviving to actually be able to write that, but it's a, uh, it is a, it is a big book and it is, um, it's really the first book I've written since America's Game that has the potential to be a truly awful book because the, the oh, scope I, is so big. The scope is so big. If I don't get everything right, it, it could be a hot mess, but I'm, uh, I'm know, hopeful. As a guy who's read a, a lot of what you, you do, you know, 
whatever it is, it's going to be, it's going to be magnificent. And uh, one question about that book coming up, are you going to spend any time talking about my favorite um, cultural icon of the seventies, Howard Cosell? Oh, definitely. Howard Cosell, um, you know, Monday night football was so hugely influential, not just culturally, but also within sports. Um, After Monday night football launches in 1970, World Series goes to primetime in 71. Um, The Olympics become a primetime staple starting in 72. Uh, The NCAA championship game moves to primetime in 73. I think a case can be made that Monday night football moved all of American sports into a more central role in in the culture. So, yeah, Cosell Cosell will be mentioned. Okay. And, Michael, how can people find you um, on social media? Um, I'm at McCambridge on Twitter and the website is michaelmccambridge.com. Awesome. Awesome. Michael, thank you very much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it and, uh, look forward to, um, reading. Uh, I look forward to reading your, your book, uh, your, your current book real soon. Once Scott finishes it and sends it, yeah, my I'll, way. I'll knock it out quickly. <laughs> I can't wait. All right. Sounds <laughs> and good. I will, good and I will be doing a pre-order today. by Kindle too. Cause I just, uh, it is literally up on my desktop as we talk here. So, Michael, thank Excellent. you very much. And um, thank you, for everybody, for listening. Look out, football, here we come. Houston Oilers, number one. Houston has the Oilers, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, always in control. And when you say the Oilers, you're talking Super Bowl, cause we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number one. Team no hope, cause we're the Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, you know we're gonna hold the rope, yes we're the Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number one, yes we're the We're the Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number one, five, seven, eight. We're the best from the Lone Star State, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number one. Cause we're the Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers, Houston Oilers number This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.